will be in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Let's pray for the Spirit's help, and we'll get right to work. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We ask that we would be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, as is our custom, we'll be picking up right where we left off last week, and there will be three points for us today, beginning here in verse 12. Let's take a look. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So the first point, right off the bat, is that we should never be surprised by suffering, and we should never forget its purpose in our lives. We should never be surprised by suffering, and we should never forget its purpose in our lives. Now let's unpack it. Let's begin with the first word here, beloved. This means quite simply, be loved when you hear this. <clears throat> be reminded how precious you are to God, scattered flock. Be reminded how precious you are to me, Peter, as your pastor from afar. That's what he's trying to communicate here. Some people believe because of this word, this is actually the beginning of a new section. I think that's debatable, but his heart behind it is very clear. He wants them to be focused. He wants them to be reminded. And most importantly, he wants them to be loved as they hear what he has to say. <clears throat> and what is it that he has to say? Well, he is reminding them not to be surprised when they find themselves in proverbial hot water. Now, the way he describes it here is he calls it a fiery trial. Now, I think this is probably the same kind of idea that he had back in chapter one when he called them there various trials. And this could refer to a number of things. It could be <coughs> the types of uh, situations in which they found themselves but they would be lacking some provision, certainly lacking power, uh, lacking protection, uh, all the different things that come from being persecuted, that being uh, from being scattered, so on and so forth. And he's saying, listen, these things are going to happen. When you follow Jesus, part of the deal is you are going to suffer. So when that happens, don't let that be a surprise to you. And even though he gave this command to people in a very different situation than where most of us in the West find ourselves, isn't this a really good word for us as well? Because suffering comes at us through a variety of avenues, doesn't it? It comes at us through the, close to the heart of the text here when we suffer for the fact that we're Christians. Maybe that we can't go along with something at the office or, you know, we have a different opinion of someone in the, in the neighborhood or on the ball team or whatever. And we, we just can't endorse whatever someone is asking us to do so. And people have things to say about that. And we don't need to be surprised by that because Peter tells us it's coming. And also, all the other writers of the Bible tell us this as well. You think about what Jesus said in John uh, 15. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So if we're going to follow Jesus and they hated Jesus, well, there's going to be times that they hate us for the same reason. <clears throat> uh, John writes this as well. 1 John 3, 13, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. 
But in the midst of this difficulty, there is good news. Because Jesus also said in John 16.33, He said, In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So suffering for being a Christian came to these early Christians. It comes to all Christians, and we should not be surprised when it comes our way. And as basic and as fundamental as that is, isn't that really helpful to know? Isn't it really helpful just to be reminded, hey, when these things happen, I don't need to be surprised by this. I don't need to be taken off guard by this because it's always happened and it will happen until Christ's return. Now, <clears throat> beyond that, suffering comes through other avenues as well. There's suffering for being Christian, that's what he's talking about here. But suffering also happens because we are in a fallen world. Uh, This pandemic is a great example. It's a great reminder that the way things are functioning now, it's not the way God set things up. It's not the way that it's gonna be once God finishes and rights all the wrongs and fixes everything that's broken. (coughs) But it is the way that we have to operate now. And we need to be prepared for it. And we don't need to ever be surprised by it. And just knowing that helps us in a lot of practical ways. It requires us to to, to get things like life insurance. It causes us to say, hey, we need to get a will and get all of our affairs in order. It also helps us be (coughs) spiritually prepared so that when these things happen, we are not caught flat-footed, that we have prayed and we have talk to our families and we have studied and we have a good theology to, to, to handle when the storms of life comes up, come upon us. <clears throat> Peter wanted them to have that. He wants us to have that. And beyond that, <clears throat> he also wants us to remember that God has a purpose for our suffering. Let's look back at it. <clears throat> it says, so do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So very clearly, the, the, the purpose for these trials coming upon us is to test us. And Peter doesn't mean this in some kind of way that God is pernicious or strange or that we are rats in a maze and he's doing some kind of experiment on us. He uses this word test in the way that the Old Testament used it to talk about a refiner's fire. That if someone, a metallurgist of some kind, was trying to purify gold, they would put it in what we know now as a crucible and heat it up to extreme temperatures and it would burn away the impurities, the dross, they called it, leaving only the precious metal behind. And so Peter is saying that God uses trials, he uses sufferings uh, that come into our lives for the purpose of burning away those impurities and making us more like Jesus. Now, that is counter to what most of us think and most of us experience when things come into our lives, right? Because what do we often think? We immediately look at this and we go, gosh, where is God? He's forgotten me. Why is he doing this to me? So on and so forth. And the reality is, God is not doing something to us. He is seeking to do something in us. He is purifying us. He is causing a greater dependence upon 
him. He is burning away that dross so that our faith would be purified like precious metal. And Peter wants these precious believers then and now to understand this. Don't be surprised when the suffering comes. And second, don't forget why it has come in the first place. God is using it to test you, to refine you, to make you more like Christ. So let's stop and ask a couple of application questions. First of all, are you surprised when trials come? If they're specifically for the fact that you're a Christian or just general trials from living in a fallen world, are you surprised when they come? Hopefully after hearing this, you won't be. Second, do you understand the purpose of those trials in what Peter is saying here? That God is not doing something to us. He wants to do something in us. He wants to test us. He wants to refine us. He wants to use them to make us more like Jesus. Friends, if that's not your perspective this morning, I hope that it will be after you lay hold of this text. May the Holy Spirit write this on our hearts so that the next time we suffer, which is likely right around the corner, we will be better prepared and we will be better biblically informed so that we can endure it better for ourselves and for the glory of God. Now, this perspective that Peter gives them in the beginning verses here in verse 12 leads to the fact that he says something almost crazy in verses 13 and 14. Let's take a look at it together. It says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So second point today, we should rejoice in our suffering. We should rejoice in our suffering. Now let me be clear here. I'm not saying we necessarily need to go, yay, trials, I love it. I love when fiery trials come upon me. I, I, I'm not necessarily saying we go that far. But in the midst of them, when we lay hold of who God is, and we lay hold of what God is doing, even if it's in a general sense, therein lies plenty of fodder for our rejoicing. And this is an important thing for Peter. Look, look back in your text there. Right there uh, in verse 13, he uses three different words uh, to, to, to get at this same idea. So this concept of rejoicing, one translator translated it like this, be constantly rejoicing is very important to him. And think about how distinctive this is to the world around us. I mean, nobody thinks like this unless they have a biblically informed perspective. And Peter even lays out <coughs> why this should be the case. In addition to what he said in verse 12, he gives three reasons right here that are either explicit or implicit within these couple of verses. Let, let's look at it. Uh, the first thing is that, that we know that we fellowship with Christ in our sufferings, uh, that it is an honor and a privilege if we get treated the way Jesus got treated for the name of Jesus. Paul talks about this himself uh, over in Philippians chapter 1. 
and also Philippians chapter 3. Uh, he called it the, the fellowship of his sufferings, and he talked about that being gift from God. So when we are acting like Jesus for the sake of Jesus and we get persecuted for the name of Jesus, uh, surely we are identifying with Christ in that way. Second thing, in the midst of doing so, Jesus is with us in those persecutions and trials. A uh, great example of this from the Old Testament. You remember the story of the uh, three Hebrew children. There was a, a fourth man in that furnace, and it is my belief that that is a, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ. That was a guest appearance uh, of Jesus in the album of the Old Testament, so to speak. And it, it shows that he identified with those people that were uh, standing up for the cause of God in their day, and he stood with them in the midst of the fire. The same is true for us today. Uh, you, you see also in the book of Acts, chapter 23, chapter 27, uh, it, it's, uh, 2 Timothy also, also talks about this, that the Lord was with Paul in the midst of his trials. And also, uh, Jesus himself just blatantly says at Matthew 28, last thing he says before he heads back to heaven, that he will be with us uh, always, even to the end of the age. So when you take these things together, when we are suffering for the name of Jesus, and when we're suffering in general, the Lord is with us. And then he explicitly says here in verse 14 that when we're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And then why is that? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, we know that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit moves into your life. We know this. But it seems to be that what he's saying here is that the Spirit rests upon you and is with you, perhaps in a special way, to uphold you in those times of trials. So I, I don't know how many times that I've seen a Christian, uh, whether a church I pastored or somebody I knew somewhere else, that, that just go through something horrible. I mean, some of the worst things that um, the, the world has to offer, loss of a child, uh, all those kinds of situations. And you look at that and you go, how in the world is this person held up under that kind of stress and trauma and grief and so on? It, the Holy Spirit is holding them up if they belong to Jesus. And I can attest to that even in my own life, that in particular periods of intense struggle, uh, I, I just sense a like, a, like, a like an extra measure of help from the Holy Spirit carrying me along. And that is what I think he is saying here. He is saying that the Spirit is with us in a special and profound way in those seasons of trial, particularly when they're for the name of Christ, and therefore that should be cause for our rejoicing. So a couple of application questions that we should ask ourselves here. Now the first question we need to think about with this is what is our typical response when we find ourselves in a time of trial? Uh, the first move is probably not rejoicing. We're usually so angry or so sad or so uh, just out of it that we have to kind of climb through that to get to the rejoicing. But surely that needs to be our goal. And the second question that I want to ask here is, how quickly are we reminded of that special help that the Holy Spirit will give us in these times of trial, particularly when we're suffering for the name of Christ? Friends, we need to lay hold of that as quickly as we can. 
We need to ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Help me hold up. Help me remember the truth. Help me focus on Jesus. Let me be a witness in the midst of whatever's going on here. Those are the kinds of prayers that we need to be praying <coughs> when we find ourselves in these kinds of suffering situations. <coughs> but there is a type uh, of suffering that maybe doesn't fall into this category. And that's what Peter gets into here in verses <coughs> 15 and 16. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. <coughs> Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So what he's saying there is not all suffering is created equal, right? That you can suffer for the name of Jesus, and then you can suffer for not acting like Jesus. And that <coughs> could take the shape of being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. Those are pretty obvious. Uh, or a meddler, somebody that's always a busybody that's <coughs> getting up in everybody's business and so on. And he says, listen, you want to avoid that. You don't want to be about that. And you only want to suffer for those times when you are actually doing what's right and for the name of Christ. <coughs> so... That gets us to verses 17 and 18. And he says here, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are, is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now in the Old Testament, the household of God <coughs> refers to the temple but now he's talking about it in regard to the group of people that belong to God. Uh, this language that he's um, adopting here comes from Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 9 and also Malachi 3. But again, it's the same idea of the Lord purifying his people. And it's very important to understand here, even when he uses this word judgment, which we typically think as punitive, <coughs> he does not intend it is punitive in this context. It's the same idea of purifying uh, and cleansing that we saw back at the first of this passage. Now also here, <coughs> when he talks about what will be the outcome of those who don't know Jesus, this is a quotation from Proverbs 11.31 uh, from the Septuagint. And he's speaking here basically saying, listen, if God <coughs> has to purify his own people, if he has to get them ready for his appearing, so to speak, and we know how difficult that can be at times, then what in the world is it going to be like for someone who stands before a holy God someday that has no covering of the righteousness of Christ, that their judgment is not uh, purifying in nature, but it is punitive, that they will be paying for their sins. And certainly this is a clear gospel plea from this text that we want to be the people that stand on the end of God's judgment as purification, not as paying for our own sins. So if you hear this today and that strikes a chord with you, it could be that God is using this very piece of truth to draw you to himself. And the right response for you in, in this moment <laughs> is to admit that you're a sinner, to believe everything that Jesus has done for you, His perfect life, His substitute's death, His glorious resurrection, and to commit your life to Him, 
to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. And if that is stirring in your heart this morning, then reach out to us. Shoot us an email, refugefranklin at gmail.com, and we want to help you on your spiritual journey any way that we can. But for the rest of us who've already made this turn, let's be thankful that we are enduring (coughs) the kind of purifying judgment now, not the kind of punitive judgment that will happen for others in the future. And listen, (coughs) I know this can be difficult. C.H. Spurgeon knew this could be difficult. He told a story about one time (coughs) about how his mother uh, pruned the apricot tree at their house to the point that he was afraid that there would never be any fruit on that tree ever again. They cut it so short that he wondered if that was the end of the line. But do you know what happened that next year? When that tree came back out, (coughs) he said they had apricots for themselves and for everyone else. His mother made jam, they made pie, they ate it as fresh fruit, and there was still plenty uh, plenty left over for the birds. So this type of (coughs) purification that this pruning that Peter is talking about in this passage, we need to be thankful for it, we need to embrace it, and we need to look forward to what God is going to do in our lives because of it. (coughs) And that leads us to our final point. Let's take a look at it together in verse 19. Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator (coughs) while doing good. So third point, In the midst of our suffering, we should entrust ourselves to our faithful Creator and keep doing good. So the first thing to notice here, those who suffer according to God's will, this is a reminder of the sovereignty of God, that nothing comes into our lives that doesn't first come through God's hand, that this doesn't sneak up on Him, that He allows it, (coughs) that He uses it, and we need to remember that and be helped by it. In addition, let's also be reminded of the word that is used here for entrust. It means to deposit for safekeeping. It's a banking term. The modern equivalent would be when you go to the bank and you see that little logo, little decal uh, on the side of the window that says deposits are insured by FDIC. What he's getting at there is, hey, up to a certain amount, you can count on if you put this money in here, (laughs) they're going to take care of it and you can get it back at some point. And so what he's saying here is that God is even more reliable. We can entrust ourselves to him uh, and and you can take that to the bank. Now, it's also interesting here that he says faithful creator. He could have used faithful savior. He could have said uh, faithful Lord, other words. But I think what he's getting at here with the term of creator is that God is the one who provides, who sustains, who cares for His creation. And we need to know that we can trust Him and we can go to Him uh, and entrust ourselves, particularly in these times of struggle and trial. And so that, He wraps all this up to give us sincere and true and abiding encouragement that can help us in our time of suffering. Now, toward that end, I want to close with a piece of writing that I found this week that talks about this idea, and I think it's certainly a help to strike to the heart of what this passage is about. <clears throat> it comes from a man named George Matheson. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1842, 
and he gave us some really helpful ways to lay hold of this. But it's even more poignant to know the perspective from which he was writing. He was born with vision problems, but by the time he was 18, his sight was basically completely gone. But he had unique spiritual insight into the things of Scripture. Listen to what he had to say. There is a time coming when your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitutes your pain. Nothing could be more sad to Jacob than the ground on which he was lying, a stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the season of his night. It was the seeming absence of his God. The Lord was in the place, and yet he knew it not. Awakened from his sleep, he found the day of his trial was the dawn of his triumph. Ask the great ones of the past of the spot of their prosperity, and they will say it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham. He will point to the sacrifice of Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph. He will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses. He will date his fortune from the danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, and she will build you her monument on the field of her toil. Ask David, and he will tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job, and he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter. He will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John. He will give you the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, and he will attribute his inspiration to the light that struck him blind. But ask one more. Ask the Son of God. Ask him whence his rule over the world came, and he will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying the Gethsemane ground. I received my scepter there. Friends, doesn't that strike to the heart of what Peter is talking about here? That God can use our pain with great purpose. That He tests, He refines, He causes us to become more like Jesus. And in the midst of that, it strengthens our faith. It strengthens our care for one another. It strengthens our dependence upon God and our brothers and sisters. Ultimately, even though it's painful, it helps. And as we close this passage today, I want to ask you a question. Where do you most need the help of God that is seen between the lines of this passage? Where do you most need to be upheld by the same Spirit that helps us in an unusual way in these times of suffering? Wherever that may be today, friend, let that point of your deepest pain be the place where God shows up the most clearly. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time that we've had together in Your Word. We pray that You would write it on our hearts that you would shape us, change us, and help us this week. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.